Welcome back to Begin to Code with JavaScript Chapter 6. <laughs> the final. Nowhere near the final, I'm afraid. There are many more to come. I'm in my squeaky chair today. Oh, isn't that awesome? Uh, and so you might hear that. That's like an added bonus. You don't pay extra for that. In fact, thinking about it, you don't pay anything. <laughs> Why am I so poor? Oh, I know. Yeah, anyway, um, but but it's all, all very good and splendid. Uh, and you can all rush out and buy the book, which you can find at 3w's.begintocodewithjavascript.com, uh, your, your non-stop location for all the good stuff, including links to the podcast and other things as well. We're on to Chapter 6, which is Repeating Actions in Programs. And I use the echoey bit to mean headings. So without further ado, I like ado, but not, not too much ado. Um, what you will learn. Oh, that is echoey, isn't it? In the last chapter, you learned how a program can make decisions and change its behavior according to the data that it's been given. In this chapter, you will discover how to make a program repeat a sequence of actions using the JavaScript loop constructions. Along the way, to, along the way uh, we're going to explore some new features of HTML uh, and JavaScript. So we're going to learn some quite interesting and fun stuff on this one. And we're going to look, look at how programs can go wrong and how good design can reduce the chances of a program failing. So, app development. Now, our starting point is the theme park raid. Right, raid? <laughs> Good thought. That could be a movie. Theme park raid. Uh, st starring Chuck Norris, of course. Um, very old reference there for you folks. Um, but no, this is actually going to be theme park ride. Now, we use this in Chapter 5. We have a theme park next door to our house because basically that's how we live. The theme park owner, she's a big friend of ours and wants us to write software for us to put on terminals all around her theme park telling people what rides they can go on. These terminals take in the number of the ride you want to go on. Number one is Scenic River Cruise. Number two is Carnival Carousel. Number three is Jungle Adventure Water Splash. Number four is Downhill Mountain Run. And number five is the regurgitator uh, you put your number in one to five and your age press the check your age button uh, and then it comes up with you can go on whatever ride you want to go on uh, and uh, okay it was uh, as a theme park ride thing pretty good uh, as an example of how to use if conditions completely amazing so in chapter six uh, we're going to explore this and take it a bit further because what's happened is that the owner has come back with a better idea of how the program should work now what she says is that actually I don't want people to have to enter their, their, their chosen ride in. Just put your age in, hit the check your rides button, and the ones you can go on are all lit up in green, and the ones you can't go on are all lit up in red. Uh, and she thinks this is easier to use. It shows what rides are available. Uh, and um, in figure 6.2 of our wonderful book chapter, <laughs> which I, I won't mention again because that'll be over pluggery, uh, which isn't probably a thing, but sounds disgusting. Uh, moving on, um, in chapter, in, in, you'll see that there is basically a screenshot, which is what she has given us, which is wonderful. I love working from screenshots because there's a very good chance you'll make it look like how they want. Not a total chance, but a good one. Anyway, you agree at price. 
uh, and, and you, you start writing the code. Now, the first version of the program had uh, ride numbers, one, two, three, four, five. This version, no ride numbers because we don't ever have the user enter them. So if you look at um, the way that HTML works, we, we used a numbered list last time to make our list of uh, a feg of uh, uh, theme park rides. In this one, we're going to use an unnumbered list, which is called a UL. And you give that a bunch of list items that enclose it, and those are all the items in the list. And a UL list doesn't number them, just puts a bullet point up instead and looks kind of cool. So in the text in the book, which you can find at that website I won't mention because you're tired of hearing it, um, you'll find there's a, an unnumbered list with a, with a particular class that formats it and a particular ID so the program can find it. Uh, and inside there we have all the various rides. Uh, and that is splendid and wonderful. Uh, and so all we have to do is get hold of the element which has a particular name. We have to then use the age number value that we've read from the user to decide whether or not to set the class of that uh, element to a class that displays red or a class that displays as green. And so this is how we get our color changing behavior. Now we know what a class is, don't we? Yes, we do. A class is that thing in a style sheet that defines a, a bunch of pre-packaged styles that our graphic designer, who's probably paid more than we are, but <laughs> we'll have to let that slide, uh, they actually go away and they make the classes that make the thing look funky. And then we pull those in from the style sheet to use them on the elements on the page. And so they've made two classes, one called menu yes and one called menu no. Uh, the yes one is green, the no one is red. That's just how we've done them. We could use different colors if we wanted, but those two seem the ones that work the best. And our if condition basically sets the class name attribute uh, property of the element to either no or menu no or yes. And the browser then makes the color of the thing on the page change. Uh, and this actually works rather nicely. It's a simple if condition. If age is less than six, make it uh, menu no. If the age is bigger than six, then make it menu yes. And the piece of code in the book does this for the Jungle Adventure ride, but for no others. Because to make it work on the other ones, we actually have to copy this code. It's a standard um, thing you, you do. You make it work for one element, and then you make it work for all of them. Uh, and uh, in the code, yeah, there's a standard way of making this work. We get the reference, then we open the property, and we've done this before many, many times. And in the book, I actually show you what the menu yes and menu no classes look like. They just have a single color setting. One of them is colored green, and one of them is colored red. And this combination of JavaScript and Starsheet, think of these things as all working together. The document, the HTML file shows you what the page looks like and gives the browser a thing to draw. The CSS file gives the styles for each of the elements that say what color and what appearance and what font they should have, which is fine. And then the JavaScript is like, is like the conductor of this little orchestra, which then actually tells all those things what to do and brings parts in from one or the other uh, as appropriate. So we've got this little, uh, little, little trio of things working together and uh, we've written the one piece of code that works for one of the rides, then a friend of ours says, oh, okay, um, I hear you're writing program code for the theme park, uh, and uh, I'd like to get in on the act if you're okay with that. Anything I can do? And you think, yeah, I'd much rather um, go off and do something fun than create this particular piece of the program. So you hand off the rest of the job. So what your programming friend has to do is go off and take this particular construction the if condition that says if your age is less than six, which is the jungle adventure one, then uh, you can't go on it, otherwise you can. Take that piece of code and replicate it for all the other rides. Uh, this is uh, kind of boring work, 
uh, and uh, yeah, get get him to do it. Why not? Uh, so you do that, and off he goes, uh, and he, he comes back with the program, and it seems okay. So you put it out there, and after a while, the phone rings, and it's your theme park owner, and she's not very pleased because there's a fault in the program. Um, she's been getting reports from people who have been getting the wrong age values for one of the rides. Uh, and this is something that if you get into programming and you start selling programs for money, uh, money is good because money can buy goods and services, uh, by the way, if you haven't already spotted this. So you do things for money. Uh, contracts are signed. If you've got any sense, contracts are signed. The thing goes out there. And after a while, you get a phone call at three in the morning saying your program has just gone wrong in Japan. Uh, and then you have to go online and say either, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. I'll be on the next flight out or have you tried to there's all kinds of things that can happen but you get this occasionally if you're a professional programmer and sometimes it's your fault and sometimes it isn't and i have a programmer's point that delivers that deals with this specifically programmer's point always respond constructively to fault reports now i've had my share of bugs over the years and i learned quickly that customers appreciate a positive response to their fault reports just saying mine works fine, does not actually help the situation at all, even or especially if it's true. It's important to remember that when you're fixing a fault, your loyalty is to solving the problem, not finding out who caused it, not avoiding blame for it going wrong or anything like that. Um, I never made a fuss when a bug turned out to be not my fault, which happened quite pleasingly often as it turned out but when it was on those rare occasions i always took full responsibility for it uh, and, and dealt with it and i was always extremely constructive um, to fault reports even when i was completely convinced that it wasn't my fault two reasons for that one is the customer likes it two is even though i was convinced sometimes it did turn out to be a thing that i had done because that is the way of programming but the most important point to take away here and this is a really really crucial one is that by being constructive in your approach you can turn a negative into a positive the customers have been around a bit and they know that programs have bugs in because they've all got iPhones and they've all got TVs and they've all got cars and they've all discovered that sometimes the darn things don't do what they're supposed to do. So they know about software bugs. If you just go in there and say, ah, not my fault, I'm not fixing that, it'll cost you, then it'll end badly. If you go in there and say, my goodness, what's happened? How can I fix it? What can I do? What happens? Where's the problem? Where does it go wrong? How can I make it right? That really, really helps. And you can end up with people saying how wonderful you are because you've fixed a mistake that you've made in a professional and constructive way. So do that. Always respond constructively to fault reports and with that little message from our non-sponsor i'll go on we're going to try fixing some faults this is a piece of code analysis i've got a specially broken piece of ride selector code sitting on my hard drive and if we hie over now to youtube you can see the video that i have <laughs> yet to create but will in a minute which explains exactly what was wrong with the program and how you fix it. Kind of like a murder mystery, but there's no murder and it isn't much of a mystery. <laughs> so I'll see you there uh, and uh, we'll, we'll go on from there. Fantastic.
Okay, we've found our bug and we have fixed it. Go us. Uh, but we decided that the bug itself was caused by uh, some fairly dodgy programming practice. So, the importance of well-designed code. <laughs> Sorry about that. A bridge made of random pieces of wood nailed together that, that shudders and creaks as you cross it is probably not built to a particularly good design. Uh, you can consider soft software in, in, in design terms as well. The theme park ride application is kind of like a case in point. It's a bit like a badly made bridge. It works, but the internal structure is not good. As, as we've seen before uh, above, using multiple copies of the same if construction makes mistakes likely when writing the code. Uh, there's another possible source of error in that the name of the rides are held in the HTML file and the age limits for the riders are held in the JavaScript file. These things are totally distinct and separate, and we may need to make sure that if we change one of them, we have to change the other. We have, these things have to line up, and, and things that have to line up in different parts of a solution are a bad thing. You should try and concentrate all the information about a particular thing into a single place. In the next chapter, we'll talk about things called objects, and objects are a great way to create lumps of information about specific things and bring them all together. We haven't done objects just yet, so what we have to do here is actually figure out how we can bring these together in a better way because, programmers point, de design is important. Now, you might think that what we're doing here is sort of getting too carried away with the artistic designs and natures of our application, which is not really true. Um, I mean, I know the program, as written, will work, uh, but it is important to think in terms of how the design is good and tries to minimise the chances of bad things happening. If you're not convinced about this, Consider the implications of a bug in the theme park ride selector that caused a three-year-old child to go on the regurgitator. This would be bad for everyone, particularly the poor child. They might be injured, and the theme park owner would have to sort of get in, get in there and try and explain what had gone wrong. And pretty soon she'd be talking to you, and pretty soon you'd be trying to explain why your code was faulty and what had gone wrong. If you followed best practice in designing it, the chances are that you'll, get, you'll, you'll, you'll not suffer quite so much. So when you make a solution, you should try and reduce to the smallest value possible the number of ways it can fail. Because many bugs are produced because things are, uh, are, are sort of spread all over the place or not well designed. And particularly when a program is modified, the easier you make it to see whereabouts your bits of your system are, the easier it is to change, and the less chance of, chances there are of mistakes being made when those changes occur. Well, look at design techniques all the way through this book. I don't want to give you one more thing to worry about here. There's enough to worry about to wait learn how to program, but I think it's important to start from a viewpoint that good design is important and then take steps as you learn how to do this uh, of, of when you can put the design in and make things better. So please keep all this in mind and let's look at a trick we can play to improve one aspect of our design and then bring it along to try and make everything else better as well. And with that all in mind, let's talk about... <laughs> I can't turn the... No, what the... <laughs> adding data attributes to HTML elements. Now, 
we can start to improve the structure of our application by bringing all the data that controls it into one place. This will remove one possible cause of errors. We're going to do this by putting the age limits inside the elements that display the right information in a web page. This is a powerful feature of HTML and JavaScript and we'll use it a lot in later programs. The feature we're going to use is called a data attribute and that's in italics and I'm leaning over as I say that okay now we've seen that an HTML element can contain attributes that modify it in some way for example to display red text I add a style attribute to a paragraph to select red uh, and in the text you can see this I have a style thing so I less than P to start the paragraph style equals color red close the paragraph off put the text in there this red paragraph, and, and the, the browser goes oh and makes this red so an attribute is, is something which modifies an element and each HTML element has a particular set of attributes for example a paragraph element as you've seen has a style attribute that sets the text style whereas an image element has a SRC attribute that says a source file and alts and what other bits and pieces it might want to use so we're going to make one of those custom specifically for your for our application I'm going to look at the list items that describe each of the rides on our web page. They have in them an ID attribute so the program can find them and update their red or greenness but they also now in the code in the book have a data hyphen min age and a data hyphen max age attribute which is a string that's in the case of the screen scenic river the minimum is zero and the maximum is 120 which is a very big age that no one at the theme park will actually have reached but the idea is that that information stored inside the HTML so we're taking the stuff that describes what the screen should look like and adding some data to it if you think about it this is the perfect place to put the age values because when you look at it you can see everything it's called scenic river it has the minimum age of zero and the maximum age of 120 and it's all in one place it's not that the age control values are being used in a separate JavaScript file they're now all in here and this actually makes our life a lot easier. The HTML can be parsed by our JavaScript program to pull this data out and use it to make decisions. If you look in the text, you'll find there's a method called getAttribute, which I call on the element reference, and that is given a string, which is the name of the attribute you want. We can add data min age or data max age, and it brings back the value of that attribute. And once we've got that, we can use it in exactly the same way as we use the min and the max ages in the previous versions of the program. I compare them with age number and then away I go. If it's a bit hard to understand from me reading this out, then fair enough. The good news is we have a code analysis which looks at the attributes. That's a piece of video and that is coming up now. And we're back. We've slain one of the dragons that could cause our code to be bad. We've actually taken the age value and we've stored it alongside the ride details inside our program. This is a good thing. We can be kind of proud for, of ourselves for this one. As we'll see in a minute, this is a stepping stone to making something truly wonderful, which we're going to start looking at now by considering 
using an unnumbered list as a container. What a dynamic title for a section of a programming book that is. Now, at the moment, if you had a look at the example code that you went through in the um, uh, video, you'll find that I only actually I only went and I only did two rides. Why was that? Well, I, I'm lazy. I didn't want to have to copy all that code out again. Uh, copying something is just not something you, you should do. Uh, and so I've, I backed off from doing that. Uh, it's too much like hard work. And I was concerned I might make a mistake. If you feel yourself in that position, then you really should think in terms of improving the way that your code works. And it turns out that there is a way in which we can use a feature of JavaScript we haven't seen before to actually make our life much, much, much easier. Now in the book, there's a list of the rides in the theme park. You've seen this two or three times now. There's an unnumbered list that contains a bunch of list items and there's one for each of the rides. And the list item contains the name of the ride in text like Scenic River Cruise or whatever and the min age and the max age data attributes that we've just seen. Now I've given the list a name. In this case, it's called Menu Ride List. And uh, it turns out that you can actually work through the elements in a container element using JavaScript code. Okay, now what do I mean by container? Well, a container is, <laughs> and this is not going to be news to you folks, a container is something which contains things. Now, the unnumbered list contains a bunch of list items. And what we're going to do now is actually do a little bit of make something happen, which would be kind of funky, investigating how to use list elements and work through them in our programs. So I'm going to fire up my YouTube recording bits and pieces again, and you're going to toddle off and actually watch the video. See you in a second or two. The JavaScript for loop. Ah, this is where it gets really interesting because now we've, we've got, we've, it is within our power to do something truly awesome. Yes, we know how to make um, lists. We know how to work through lists. We know how to use the index to pull elements out of lists. All we need now is something that can count through these items so our program can do things with them. And that is the for loop. It's a special JavaScript language construction, which is specially for made, for made for making loops. And it has the word for, followed by an open bracket, followed by a setup phase, followed by a semicolon, followed by a test thing, followed by a semicolon, followed by an update thing, followed by a close bracket, followed by the statement it's going to actually perform. That all sounds complicated, but really it's not. The setup element is performed once to start the loop up. Now the test element is worked out every time we want to do a, a, the statement. We're going to keep on doing this statement while the test result is truthy or, or true. Um, and the idea is that we'll stop as soon as that becomes false. If the contest never becomes false, our program will keep on going forever, which would be a bad thing uh, in most circumstances. If it returns false at the start, the for loop will never perform anything. And the update element of this is actually going to update something uh, each time around the loop and this all controls the execution of a statement. Now the standard way of using a for loop is to use a thing called a control variable. Now this is basically a counter. 
If you were doing something and you wanted to do it a hundred times, you'd get a piece of paper and you'd write down how many you'd done so far. And you keep on updating that. Actually, being a human being, you might not do that. You might carry it in your head, at least until someone interrupts you and you forget where you got to. And you have to do it all again. So, yeah, um, we have a control variable that keeps track of where we've gone through in our loop. So the setup part of a proper loop is something like um, let i equals zero. The test part is i is less than 10 and the update part is i equals i plus 1. Now if you look in the book you'll find that actually the output from this um, is produced by a statement called console.log. Uh, we need to find out what that does and for that we need a, a tiny bit of code analysis. So this is all in YouTube uh, and uh, my this is a complicated chapter isn't it? Uh, and so we'll nip over there now and take a quick look there and then we'll come back. Okay. <laughs> Well, I quite enjoyed that, which is good. <laughs> so, yes, we've now got two two components which we can use together to make something really rather wonderful. We have these element things we can do stuff with, uh, and we have this for loop thing we can use to count through things. And so put those two together, and what you have is a piece of code you can find in the book in Chapter 6. And we get our rides, and we use that counter in this case i'm going to use the variable i because i always use i for counting and rather than getting the first the the zeroth the oneth the second the the tooth the the, the threeth you know where i'm going with this you use the ith and so rather than having to have a piece of code for every different right i have one piece of code and it goes around a loop and it's applied to the ith element each time and my for loop takes i from naught through to four, not one, two, three, four. So I get all my rides done by a single piece of code, which I write only once and then obey five times. This is genius. I love this code. I like how it works. You should spend time looking at it. Find the book. Look at the code. Marvel at it. It's not perfect. We can make a few changes to improve it, but it's pretty darn good. Take it from me. Take it from one who knows. And so the idea is that we've now got a mechanism where we've only got one copy of the code. We've got all the data in one place, which is the web page. And we now have a solution, which I would say was uh, close to professional quality in that it actually hangs together in a really rather nice way. If you want to appreciate just the wonderfulness of it, think of a couple of scenarios. The theme park buys a new ride. What do you have to change in your program to handle the fact we now have six rides rather than five? The answer is nothing, because the program figures out how many rides it's got based on the HTML file. As soon as I put my new ride in the HTML file with its data attributes, bang, the new file just works. Okay, second question. What happens if we change the age on one of the rides? Do I have to change my program? No again, because we can change that in the HTML, not in the code. We've got this lovely idea that the code is basically a little appliance that we just turn loose and off it goes. And that brings me to one of the most important points in this entire book. It's a programmer's point. Programmer's point. Great programmers are constructively lazy. 
Now, I think you can spot a great programmer by the way they use their skills to avoid hard work. I call this constructive laziness. Um, if I find myself having to write lots of code or worrying about synchronizing different parts of a solution, I'll find a way of using loops or bringing things together into one nice, single, cohesive place. I'll think about neat ways to make my life easier. My first line of attack is normally, is there a routine in the library or a thing which will do this for me so I don't have to write it at all? If I have to write it, I'll then try and figure out the best way of doing it, which involves the minimum possible work and the minimum possible risk. Um, so be constructively lazy. Think about ways in which you can, if you find yourself doing the same thing lots and lots of times, think there must be a better way. I can use my, another example. I had students uh, writing a GPS tracking system they were trying to test. And some of my students were walk, walking around the campus with their, with their programs, checking when they went to different places, the program actually uh, tracked them. That was hard work and very slow. Smarter programmers wrote a fake GPS device they plugged into their application, which they could use at their desk and just feed in coordinates. Use your that bit. Don't write a game. I have to play it all the way through to level 10 to find the bug in level 10. Figure out a hotkey or a cheat key to take you straight to level 10 so you can debug it. Great programmers are constructively lazy. Enough on that. Moving on. Work through collections using for of. Now, this is a thing of this is what programmers sometimes call syntactic sugar. It doesn't actually make anything possible that you can't already do, but it does make things a lot easier. We've seen we can use the for loop to go count to a range of values, and we, we have uses for that going forwards. But um, if you want to spin through the items in a collection, the JavaScript language contains the construction called for of, which is specifically designed for doing that. And so you say for let write element of write element write list element dot children say. And that loop will then work through the list and set the right element value to each of the items in the list. It takes away the need for the subscript, the counting, the length, all that stuff. It just works. It's terribly useful. It's in Chapter 6 and you should definitely take a look. It's also in the sample code in Chapter 6, Repeating Actions, Chapter 6, Number 6, for of Loop. So that's that over with. Now for something big and different. Building web pages from code. Oh, this is powerful stuff. There's, a, there's a, usually a, a piece in a movie, one of these sort of, where, where the hero's taken to one side and shown a thing of great power and mystery, which they can use to do all kinds of magical, wonderful things. Right, fine. This is one of those moments because the theme park ride selector makes good use of how we can actually pull values from the web page. Now we can take this technique even further and find out how a JavaScript program can actually create elements on the web page when it runs. You can have a web page built by software. This is amazing fun. We can make places that can construct themselves when they're loaded. For example, we want to make a program that will help people learn their times tables. So the user enters a, a number and gets a time timetable. I mean, these are kind of useful if you don't know them. So you can go 1 times 2 is 2, 2 times 2 is 4, 3 times 2 is 6, 4 times 2 is 8, and, and so on. So the user types in what times table do you want? and then hits the button. If you look at the program and it's in the book, you find it looks remarkably like the ride selection program. The pattern is exactly the same. A bunch of stuff at the top, 
uh, a question at the bottom and then a button underneath that that says do your thing in this case show me some times tables and so we've drawn out the interface how could we make it work well we could invent 12 list elements put them in the program and then have a something that works through and changes them that's okay but remember constructively lazy I don't want to have to do anything which involves repetition. I don't want to have to put in 12 list elements because the first thing that will happen if someone gets that is I say, I want a 20 times table now, please, Rob. And I have to go back and add some more. And I'm not going down that road. Let's find a better way of doing it. If you look at the code in the book, you'll find that I've made a web page that contains a completely empty list. The list is called menu times table. It's called times table list. Uh, and it contains nothing. It has a name, but nothing else. And the wonderful thing is I can then do really, really wonderful things here to actually, <laughs> maybe I'm overselling this, maybe I get too excited. I don't really care. <laughs> this is how I am. Deal with it. Um, but I can have a loop that goes around 12 times and it can work out 12 solutions and it can make 12 list elements and put them in the page as it runs. So I don't have to type anything I can build these things up. I can set the contents of them to their required message and I can then display that in front of the user. And there'll be our final, final, final code analysis building HTML from JavaScript. And we should definitely go rushing off now and take a good, hard look at that. Deleting elements from a document. Oh, I've forgotten the echo. Hang on a minute. Deleting elements from a document. That's better. Now, we've just seen a rather nifty uh, code thing which showed us how we can use software to add elements into an HTML document. And this is wonderful and very powerful and the source of much magic and joy. A bit like me. <laughs> Who am I kidding? But we did find that we kept on adding elements by pressing the button and it kept on getting more and more of them in the actual document, which is not really a win. So we have to make sure that when we, um, before we add new things, we want to clear it out. Now we did find a function uh, which we can call to remove a child from a container. And what we have to do is keep on removing these until we haven't got any more in there. And it turns out there's a perfect actual while uh, construction which will do this for you. Uh, it's called the while loop, and it's while followed by a test that's either true, truthy or falsy, followed by a statement, and the statement is repeated while the test is true. Um, and it doesn't, again, it's not a, it's a piece of sugar in that you can do it with a for loop if you wanted to, but while makes it so much nicer. So basically my test is children.length is bigger than naught, i.e. there are some elements in there, and my statement is remove child at top of list the one with the uh, index of zero. And so that loop will go around as many times as it needs to get rid of all the times table items. And I do this at the beginning of the function before I start dropping out any new ones. So if you go to chapter six, repeating actions, chapter six, example eight, times table HTML generated cleanup, you'll find that program in action and it works absolutely wonderfully. So coming towards the end now, let's have some ideas for having some fun. Make something happen. More times table fun.
this is awesome here's one you might want to try this is a very one of them's easy and one of them is challenging there are two tasks you may choose between them actually you can you can do both i don't care a 20 so 20 times table now some people at maths parties i never go to maths parties for reasons that should be obvious um they actually like reciting 20 times tables so i'm told never been invited uh, but if you want to do that how would you change the times table program that we've got to make it do 20 times? You can do this by just changing one number in the entire program. I invite you to try and do that as a challenge. If you can't work out how to do it, look in Chapter 6, Repeating Actions, 20 times table, and see if you can find out what I've done. Second one is more interesting. It is the times table tester. Now, this is a mishmash, a mashup, if you will, of the theme park ride program and the times table program in that what it does is it shows you a times table some of which are right and some of which are wrong and you have an extra button called check the times table which you press and when you press it the right ones go green and the wrong ones go red so the idea is you show it to someone and say okay pick out all the mistakes and then when they pick them out you press the button and see if they got it right so this is like a times table tester and it turns out it was quite fun to make is a little bit of fiddliness you have to use to make it go, uh, but um, the random number generation system thing I use, I, I pick a number between 0 and 1, and if the number is bigger than 0.9, I say I'm going to add 1 to the result. And if it's less than 0.1, I'm going to subtract 1. So all my numbers have a 1 in 5 chance of being off by 1, either bigger or smaller. And that's how my program works. If you have a better idea for making random wrong numbers, then by all means put it in there. If you want to see how I did it and play with mine, there's a picture of it in the book, which is quite nice too. Look at Chapter 6, Repeating Actions, Chapter 6, Example 10, 10 times, ta <laughs> 10 times table tester. Um, but have a go. The way we work this, or I want it to work, is that you have a quick crack at actually making it yourself. And then go and look at... <laughs> the one that I've done, which is no better than anybody else's really, but does does work and is fairly tidy, uh, and see how you get on. So there's a, a good a couple of, I mean, anything which involves for loops and making pages, you can now do. You could now make a page completely covered in buttons. Be a bit like those um, bits of plastic wrapping that you can pop with your fingers. You could press every single button on the page, which would be quite a fun thing to do. Maybe I'll go off and do that right now. But before I do, what you have learned. This chapter has shown you how to use the loops in JavaScript programs. You've also picked up some useful programming design tips and discovered how JavaScript code can change the structure of the document being displayed by the browser. Oh yes, you have. Here are some of the key points to take away. You can only really learn how a program should work by making something and then trying to use it. If you make a solution for someone, you must be prepared to change the way it works when they think of a better way of using it. I've had this happen to me about as many times as I've written programs. <laughs> and that's quite a few. So think of it as a, don't think of getting the perfect answer first time. No one gets that, not even Apple. <laughs> Pause for hilarious laughter. Next point, bugs are a natural consequence of software development. When a fault is reported to your to you, your loyalty should be to the process of fixing it, not assigning blame or responsibility. Some writing processes, for example, repeating behaviors by copying blocks of code, make bugs more likely. 
HTML elements can be given data attributes. This allows the program to bind data values to directly, directly to items in the document and for data to be embedded in the web page text. So you can, I said that really, really badly, but what I mean is that I can put stuff in my web page that is values and information and stuff that can then be picked up by code running in JavaScript, which is amazing. HTML elements can act as containers for other elements, and elements contained in an element are called the child, the child elements or children of that element. Individual child elements can be accessed using an index value, and the index values, as we've discovered, start at zero because they are annoying. <laughs> a JavaScript for loop construction is used to repeatedly perform a statement. The for loop has a setup, test, and update behavior. The set of behaviors formed at the start of the loop, the test is formed after each loop and also before the first loop. If the test evaluates to false, the loop stops. The update behavior is performed after each loop. We use this to make a counter. And in fact, the next bullet point makes this too. A JavaScript for loop construction can be used to manage a control variable counter that can count between two values, allowing a program to work with the children of a container element, which is a really useful and powerful thing. But JavaScript also provides a for of construction to work through elements in a container in a slightly easier to manage kind of way. There are JavaScript functions that can be used to create new page elements, that's document.createElement, and add them as children to existing elements, that's append child. These elements are then rendered by the browser. This makes it possible for JavaScript code to create the contents of a web page programmatically. There's a JavaScript function called removeChild that can be used to remove child elements from a container element. And finally, the while loop construction allows a program to repeat a block of statements while a given condition is true. Uh, and we use that to clear out all the elements from a list while there were still some elements in that list, while the list length was still greater than zero. Here are some final questions to ponder, should you be in the pondering kind of mood. So here we go. Question. What is the difference between a bug and a fault? Now, a bug is something inside a program that makes it do the wrong thing. A bug that someone's noticed is a fault. So, question, does every program contain bugs? Now, it's almost impossible to prove that a given program does not contain any bugs. Testing only ever proves that bugs exist, not that they don't. So, on that sort of basis, most programs contain bugs of some kind, but you may or may not find them, uh, and they may or may not cause a problem. So, next one. Why, Why are lists indexed starting at zero? Answer. That's just the way that JavaScript works. Some languages index things starting at one, but JavaScript starts at zero. Uh, as I said before in this, in this talk, deal with it. It's the way it is. You, you, can't, you, you, can't, uh, you can't not do that. It's just, it's just the way it is. Um, so, yeah, here we go. Can... Question, can any HTML element be a container for other elements? The answer is yes. Um, if you think about it, the HTML element is actually a container for the head and body parts of the web page. And so you, you think of this thing as a structure uh, and, and it, it, can, it can be changed and it contains these things in a kind of hierarchy of different elements. Question. Does adding an attribute to an HTML element change the contents of the web page file? You should know this one. The answer is no. 
You can think of an HTML file as defining the starting point of the document object. It's what it's made from. But the program can then change that by adding elements and changing what's in the elements to change what the user sees on the screen. Um, the objects in the memory structure that represents the page will change, but the actual text file on the disk or whatever storing it will not change. Question. What is the difference between let and var? Aha. Both keys are used to both keywords are used to create variables. Now variables created with var exist from that point in the program and do not go away. Whereas those made with let are destroyed when the program execution leaves the block where they were created. Declaring variables using let is a good idea as it reduces the chances of variables being reused by mistake. They only exist when you need them, and after that, they go away. Question. Could I create an entire website using JavaScript code? Answer. Yes. Yes, you can. Lots of web pages work like this. Rather than having an HTML file on the server, as we've said at the, seen at the moment, a site can contain a very small piece of HTML and a JavaScript program that makes the page from data it finds on the internet, on the web somewhere, and builds it that way. Lots of web pages do this, and we'll be doing more of it as we go through this in the future chapters. So that's pretty much the end of chapter six, at least as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, this is from the book Begin to Code with JavaScript, which you can find on begintocodewithjavascript.com. This is the podcast you can find links to on that site too. There are videos uh, and maybe even one day a song and a dance. So I'm going to go off and practice my <laughs> dancing and singing in case that ever happens. As for you, I hope you found it useful.